Good morning to all of you. It's starting to look like Christmas around here, doesn't it? You know, one thing about High Point, the minute that Thanksgiving is over, we move right into Christmas, my favorite time of the year when we celebrate the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know, if you've ever gotten deep into the scriptures, it is quite amazing because you can see God's story progressing. Things are continually happening in order to fulfill his plan to redeem mankind through Christ Jesus. And please understand that the true story of our creator working to rescue us from sin is a story that is full of adventure. And I say that because that's how I'd like us to frame our Christmas sermon series this year. The coming of Jesus on that first Christmas night is indeed the focus of, of the Christmas season. It's the culmination of God's story. But everything else that worked up to that point all had a purpose, and it all points us to the coming of the Messiah. I'm sure you've heard the word Advent used before. Chris used it in his opening comments. It refers to the four Sundays or weeks before Christmas or heading up to Christmas. And it's honestly a word that isn't used as much as it, as it used to be, but it's a very appropriate word for Christmas because it literally means the arrival. And uh, it refers to the arrival of the Christ child. And oftentimes it is used to reference the entire Christmas season altogether. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to look at the Christmas story in a series that we're going to call Advent Chore. Ah, pretty tricky, huh? Because as I said earlier, the story of Christmas is an adventure. When you look at the underlying details and the characters within the advent of Jesus, it all comes together for this most important event in all of human history. And today we're not going to begin our adventure where you might think. We will not begin with the gospel accounts of the Lord's birth, but we're gonna go back much further. We're gonna go back so far that we're gonna to go to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Why? Because the, the Genesis record reveals to us that God's plan to rescue mankind from sin began long, long ago. It began with a foretelling, a prophecy that the Messiah, the Redeemer, would one day be born. And God, in case you haven't noticed, always gets his forecast right. And Christmas is just one of hundreds of events that prove this fact to us. And, and it's also because it was all a part of God's plan all along. So I want to take you to take your Bibles. I'd like you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen that'll be up behind me. And as we read this, I want you to see in these 19 verses if you can detect the verse where the first messianic uh, prophecy occurs. If you can't find it, that's okay. We're going to come back to it a little bit later on. But today I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, beginning with verse 1. Follow along with me if you would. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from, the, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Now, if you didn't catch the first messianic prophecy in what we just read, don't worry about it. Like I said, we're going to come back to it, and I'm going to explain it to you in detail. But before we go any further, there are a few points that I, that I need to make they are found in, that are found in this ancient scripture that's all a part of God's story. First, I want you to notice how Satan appeared. He appeared in the form of a serpent. And don't assume that it was some kind of a slimy, slithering sna snake crawling around on the ground, hissing up his temptations to Eve. No, apparently at this very early point in history, serpents didn't crawl. Why else would God have punished the snake by telling him he would crawl for the rest of his life if he, was already, if he wasn't already a standing up creature? So originally, the serpent must have been an upright creature, possibly graceful, possibly beautiful in color, possibly very appealing. Perhaps before the fall, the serpent was the most magnificent of all the animals. We don't know for sure, but here's something I want you to ponder. Why else would prideful Satan choose that particular form of a creature? With all we know about Satan's pride that got him expelled from the heavenly realms, doesn't it make sense that finding a magnificent animal to do his dirty work through would be right up his alley? That's where my mind goes in all of this. I want you also to notice that Eve didn't seem to think that it was odd or unusual that the serpent was talking to her. I'm just speculating now, but 
Maybe the animals could communicate in some way before sin entered into the world. In any case, through this text and others, you will notice that Satan never appears as his evil self. He always shows up as something attractive, giving mankind great and and glorious predictions and promises that he has no intention of ever fulfilling, even if he could. It was the Apostle Paul who warned in 2 Corinthians 11:14, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So when the devil tempts you, it's not going to seem ugly. It's not going to seem demonic. It will most times seem attractive and appealing. And even as sometimes it might seem very, very logical to you. Another interesting thing to point out when it comes to Satan's temptation here was how Eve did not know God's command firsthand. You see, God had spoken directly to Adam in Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17, and he said clearly, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam passed this information on to his wife, and so her knowledge of God's command was actually secondhand. And I'm sure that that made this much easier for Satan to plant seeds of doubt into her mind, and you see it in his question to her. It's a question in which he, he elaborated on the actual wording here of God's command. Satan asked, did God really say that to you, Eve? Perhaps Adam elaborated a little bit. Did God really tell you that you couldn't eat of any tree? And I think Eve's response shows that she didn't really know God's command word for word. Look at verses two and three, where she replies to the serpent. She said, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Did you catch her misquote there? God's command said nothing about touching the tree. His command said only about eating from it. And to me, And again, where my mind goes, this kind of underscores the importance of all of us, every Christian, being diligent in our study of God's Word. We don't need to learn things by hearsay. We need to learn things by reading the Scriptures ourselves. This was Paul's advice to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he said, Study to show yourself to God as one approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The fact is, the better that you know the truth, the better able you are to recognize a lie when it is presented to you. And so it's very important that you and I know the Bible and how to correctly handle the word of truth. You need to read the Bible, and while you're reading it, and even prior to reading it, you need to ask God's Spirit to guide you through it as you study it. When you do this, you will be better equipped to handle temptation better than Eve did on that horrible day. Here's another thing I want to point out. Satan tempted Eve at a time when she was at ease and when her guard was down. In her book, God's Story, Finding Meaning for your life in Genesis, Anne Graham Lotz writes this, Eve walked through her garden home one day, perhaps enjoying the tranquil perfection 
of the views around her, as well as the satisfaction that was hers in being ruler over all. She probably felt the dew on the soft moss beneath her feet, smelled the fresh air that now and then carried with it the rich, heavy scent of blossoms, and enjoyed the warmth of the sun on her skin. Eve, newly created, with the body of a woman, yet the pure innocence and naivete of a baby was totally relaxed, at ease, off guard. At that moment, she was approached by the most appealing animal in the garden. The serpent planned his approach carefully, making contact with Eve when she was off guard and alone. Listen, fellow Christian, our adversary is just as crafty today, if not more so, than he was back then. He won't attack you. He won't lead you into temptation when you are alert and when you are ready for it. He would rather wait for a time when you are relaxed, a time when you are all alone, when you are off guard. That's how he operates. So let me just ask you a question this morning. What temptations have been facing you of late? When you are at ease and when your guard is down, what does the adversary dangle before your eyes? Is it lustful thoughts and actions? Is it vengeful and hateful kind of thoughts? Is it covetousness or greed? Remember, Satan knows exactly when and how you are the most susceptible to his tactics. He knows your weaknesses and he doesn't play fair. So he's gonna take advantage of you and I any chance that he has. You can count on that. I also want you to note that Satan tempted Eve in the same ways that he tempts you and I. I want you to listen to this interesting take on temptation written by Herschel Hobbes. It says, in this one verse, the one that we read, we find the entire scope of temptation. One is physical appetite. The tree was good for food. Another is aesthetic nature. It was pleasant to the eyes. The third is ambition, a tree desired to make one wise. Every kind of temptation may be fitted into one of these three categories. Satan has no new ways. Indeed, why should he? He catches us with the same old bait. He deludes us into thinking that sin is up to date, the new in thing, when all the while it is as old fashioned as Eden. So the story of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden doesn't just show us the weakness of mankind, but it also helps us to draw some very clear conclusions that I'd like to share with you this morning, beginning with this one. Sin has and always will be a problem. Based upon this one text, you realize with, with complete confidence, this is a very inconvenient truth. There is no human being living on this planet who does not disobey God in thought, word, or deed. I draw this conclusion because our text from Genesis tells us that sin entered the world through the disobedience of the first people. And here's the deal. That sin nature created by them has been passed down to all of us. As Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In a interview with a magazine after a painful divorce, actor Bill Murray was asked some very poignant questions. 
I wanted to share it with you because it ties in well with what I'm talking about here. When he was asked about future companionship in his life, I found his response to be very interesting. Murray said it would be nice to have a female companion to attend special events with, but he admitted that he needs to work on himself first. He said, there's a lot that I am not doing that I need to do. And when asked what specifically he felt was missing from his life, this is what his response was. Just something like working on yourself or self-development or something. I don't have a problem connecting with people. My issue is connecting with myself. I'm not really committing myself to that. Then if I'm not really committing myself to that, then it's better that I don't have a different person in my life. Then Murray reflected on what I believe stops us from looking into our own personal issues. He said, what stops any of us is that we're really kind of ugly if we look really hard. We're not who we think we are. We're not as wonderful as we think we are. It's a little bit of a shock, he said. It's hard. And I believe what Bill Murray was trying to convey is the fact that we are all flawed beings, aren't we? We are all ugly, in a sense. And this is indeed hard for human beings to admit. In fact, our entire society seems to be in denial when it comes to sin. These days, sin is not something anyone wants to talk about in any circles. It's definitely not what you would call politically correct conversation. Calvin Miller wrote, the word sinful was once considered to be an important part of theology, but of late it's only an adjective we apply to gooey desserts and women's perfume. The sad fact is that we even find this way of thinking in the church, in many Christian circles. Even believers have a hard time thinking of themselves as sinners. And it's a concept that seems just too extreme for many people. I saw a cartoon once of four congregation members who were in their pastor's office, and they had very earnest eyes as they presented the pastor with a clipboard filled with pages of signatures from the church members. And the spokesperson for the group said, <clears throat> excuse me, Pastor, this, pe this petition requests that in your sermon, you change the term sinner to a person who is morally challenged. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, sin is taboo in our culture. It's even become taboo to talk about in some churches. And it has caused many of us not to be as familiar with the biblical concept of sin and redemption as we should be. So I'm going to refresh our memories this morning. The first thing that we need to realize is, in the beginning, our world was a perfect world. It wasn't created evil. There was a time when there was no such thing as sin. Before the events that are chronicled in today's scripture, God looked at creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and he pronounced everything good. And furthermore, he said man was very good. So everything began perfect. All nature was in harmony, and it was free from pain. It was free from decay. The first man and woman were, were perfect in body and spirit. They harbored no evil thoughts. They were in perfect harmony and joyful companionship with nature with each other, and with God, who spoke with them face to face every day as a dear friend in the garden. 
So at first, things were good. But with the fall of man in the garden, all human history became tainted by that which is very bad. For example, one chapter later, Genesis 4 records the first murder. Genesis 4.19 contains the first mention of polygamy. Genesis 4.23 tells of another act of murder. And from there, the human race declines so badly that by the sixth chapter of Genesis, verse 15, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. In subsequent chapters in the book of Genesis, the record tells us of the beginnings of sin and wickedness, such as homosexuality in Genesis 19, incest in Genesis 19, idolatry in Genesis 31, rape in Genesis 34, mass murder in Genesis 34, and harlotry in Genesis 38, as well as many other forms of sin and wickedness that continue throughout. In Genesis 3, it tells us that this, all of this evil stemmed from the actions of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. When they used their God-given freedom in that garden to choose to do that which was wrong. I also need to mention something very important regarding all this. Evil and goodness are not equal opposites. No. Evil is dependent on good. Evil is like a a parasite. Thomas Williams puts it this way. Evil is to good, not as black is to white, but rather as rust is to metal. A disease is to health as life is to death. What he means is that evil can exist only where it can feed on good. Evil cannot precede good because it cannot exist independent of good. C.S. Lewis wrote this, you can be good for the mere sake of goodness. You cannot be bad for the mere sake of badness. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. I mean, I want you to consider the Ten Commandments. People who sin, who break these commands, are actually grasping for good things, but they're trying to get those things in the wrong kind of way. For example, The scriptures talk about gluttons. Gluttons eat too much turkey and dressing. I think we were, a lot of us were guilty of that this week. Because they desire, we desire the good taste of food. And we like that feeling of a full stomach. And then within minutes, we're nodding out on the sofa, right? Tyrants, they grasp for power because they desire significance. Adulterers and fornicators have sex because they want to experience pleasure. Now, food and significance and the pleasures of sex are all things that God created. But understand, he didn't just create them. In his word, he teaches us the proper way to desire and to experience them. In other words, he teaches us to eat in moderation. He tells us, Don't let your desire for significance exceed your desire for God. And then he makes clear, very clear, time after time, that sexual pleasures, well, they are designed to be experienced within the beautiful confines of the marriage covenant. 
Evil and sin entered the equation when we try to take these pleasurable things in the wrong way and in ways that go against God's loving laws. You see, sin is indeed a parasite that feeds on things that are inherently good. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, an archdemon writes to a junior demon, and he says this about God. He, meaning God, made the pleasures. All our research so far as demons has not enabled us to produce even one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take, ple- to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. So evil is dependent on good. It feeds on good. It distorts it. But getting back to my original point, all of us yield to Satan's temptations. All of us have a problem with sin. All of us do evil, following in the footsteps of our ancestors, the first man and woman. As Mark Twain once put it, we are all like moons. We have a dark side. Deep down inside of every human being is an inclination to evil. There is a fascination with sin. Have you ever wondered why your toddler does the one thing you hoped it would not do? Ever wonder why teenagers rebel against authority and do a lot of stupid things? Have you ever wondered why people in great positions of authority risk everything, put everything on the line for a moment of sexual pleasure or additional power? Have you ever wondered why after 150 years since the Emancipation Proclamation was made into law that racism still exists in many human hearts? Have you ever wondered why rioters destroy police cars in places of business? Have you ever been shocked to find out that that coworker that you thought was such a nice man ended up being a wife beater? Have you ever wondered why you have an inner attraction to gambling or to pornography or the use of profanity? Have you ever wondered why gossip seems so normal and can even be a bit appealing when you participate in it? It's all because of sin. And every one of us are plagued with it. All people sin. Now, just to be clear, it's not that we can't do good. Because we can, and we do. It's just that on our own, we can't keep from doing bad. And the key word there is on our own. In theological terms, ladies and gentlemen, we are totally depraved. Though we are made in God's image, we have fallen. And because we have fallen, we're corrupt to the core. The very center of our being is perverse and corrupted. In Psalm 51.5, David hit it right on the head. This is what he wrote. I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And every human being that is born, no matter how cute they look when you go visit them in the hospital and hold them in your arms for, the, arms for the first time, no matter what color their skin is, every human being has this problem. It's a tendency to sin. And this is not going to change until which time that Jesus returns and when Christ followers are finally perfected. Here's the second conclusion from this scripture. Sin will always have painful consequences. Satan left out this fact when he tempted Eve. He said nothing about the aftermath 
that would, would occur because of our actions. And he doesn't mention that to you and me either, ever. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says, Satan deceives those who are perishing. He fails to bring up that dirty feeling of being used that comes after a one-night stand. That feeling that will haunt you for years and in some cases will haunt you for the rest of your life. He says nothing about the fear and the panic that grips you when you cheat on your income tax. And every time you go to the mailbox and you see a letter from the IRS, you almost pass out. Or when you see on your caller ID that it's coming from out of state. He doesn't explain that when you get caught stealing from your employer and you lose your job, that the chances of you getting gainful employment again are going to be slim to none because now you have a record. And I could go on and on because there are serious consequences to every sin. I found several areas of alienation that were a result because of Adam and Eve's sin found in our text today from Francis Schaeffer, and I want to share them with you this morning. He writes, first there was psychological separation. In other words, man was separated from himself. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Up until this point, there was no shame. There was no guilt. Now, because of their sin, they became ashamed. The virus of sin introduced all the psychological problems of low self-esteem, poor self-image, self-consciousness, and all the problems that we battle with today. Number two, because of their sin, there was spiritual separation, which means man was separated from God. Look at verses 8 and 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now before their sin, Adam and Eve felt comfortable in the presence of God. But now they felt uncomfortable in the presence of their creator. They felt guilty. They could not stand in his holy presence because of their guilt and their sin. All the spiritual entanglements that, that people still feel today, the emptiness, the dead-end searches after, from one religion after another, trying to find some truth that you can hang your hat on, the disrespect for the Holy Scriptures, the disinterest that people have in the church, the dislike of truly righteous people, all of these varieties of spiritual separation stem from when Adam and Eve brought sin into this world. Number three, there was social separation, which means man was separated from his fellow man. We see this in Adam and Eve as they blame each other for their sin. It is so amazingly typical how Adam responded when God confronted him with his sin. He really takes it like a man and he blames it on his wife. He's pretty much saying, hey, I'm the victim here. She made me do it. And in fact, God, you made her. And since you made her, it's really kind of your fault. So, so marital strife, divorce, frivolous lawsuits, gossip, hatred, war, all the various kinds of social separation were all introduced into this world because of Adam and Eve's sin. Number four, 
there was environmental separation. Look at verses 17 and 18. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. In other words, the whole physical world was thrown off kilter because of sin. Weeds and erosion, floods and droughts, volcanoes and earthquakes, hurricanes and tornadoes, bugs and viruses. All of these environmental horrors were introduced because of sin. In fact, in the book of Romans, it says that our creation literally groans, longing to have all of this reversed, longing to be redeemed and things to be set straight by the Creator once again. And finally, there was physical separation, which means man was separated from his own body. Look at verse 19 where God says, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. From that point on, Adam and Eve could no longer eat of the tree of life because, and because of that, they began to age, and they began to move forward towards death. In Genesis 5.5, it tells us that Adam lived 930 years, but then he died. And ever since that time, Every person that has ever been born has gone through the aging process where eventually our bodies just wear out. I'm saying that all of us move toward death. Our bodies daily feel less young and more old every day. I think it was our, our fellow church member, dear friend Malcolm Brown, who once said, Pastor, growing old ain't for sissies. You know, what happens to the Christian after we die? Oh, that's a, that's a glorious thing. That is a beautiful thing. But up until that point, it gradually becomes more and more frustrating as more things start to happen as your body starts to break down. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, aging is a consequence of this first sin. And all funerals that have been done and any funerals that are going to be done in the future are a result of that sin. As the Apostle Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death. Sin always has painful consequences of many kinds, and it always will. And listen, I am completely aware that I have brought you down into the gutter right now. You're saying, man, this is the most pessimistic Christmas sermon that I have ever heard in my life, Pastor David. Way to kick off the season with joy in my heart. And I would say that too, without this final conclusion. God has a plan. Genesis 3.15 tells us God has always had a plan to deal with our sin. A plan that is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And I told you that I'd get back to this because in Genesis 3.15, you'll discover the first mention of Christmas in the Bible. You probably missed it because the word Christmas isn't used and because the name Jesus is not used in this text, but it is there nonetheless. Read it with me again. This is God talking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, Jesus is the offspring of Eve 
Another translation uses the term the seed of the woman who would one day make an entrance into this world in a most unlikely way. The reason I say unlikely is because in Hebrew, the male is considered the one who has the seed. Children are normally referred to as the offspring or the seed of the father. But this prophecy said that one day, that a day would come when a child would be born from the seed of a woman. Which is one way of saying that Jesus would be born of a virgin. He would not have an earthly father, but rather through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah's father would be God himself. Jesus would be God who became flesh. Think about that for a moment. God made his plan known at the dawn of time. In fact, even before that, that's how long God has loved you and I. That's how long he has planned your and my redemption. I watched a romance movie once when the guy said this to his sweetheart. I loved you all my life. I loved you even before I met you. And I thought that's a beautiful thing to say, but really when you think about it, it's silly because you can't love somebody you don't know. And yet our um, omniscient, omnipotent God has known you from the molecular level on out. And he has loved what he has known about you from before time began. And the scriptures also say that he knew you while you were being formed in your mother's womb. So God's great love has literally reached across time to us, to you and to me. It has always been his plan to send his one and only son into our world to crush our enemy and to come to our rescue. Anthony, you can come forward if you'd like. Help me start closing this down. In September of 1940, Witold Pilecki, who was a Polish army captain, did the unthinkable. He snuck into Auschwitz. Yes, you heard me right. He snuck into that dreaded concentration camp called Auschwitz. Pilecki knew that what was going on inside of that camp was terribly wrong, and as a committed Roman Catholic Christian and a Polish patriot, he couldn't just sit back and watch. He wanted to get information about the horrors of Auschwitz, but he knew he could only do that by being in the inside. And so his superiors approved a very daring plan. They provided him with a false identity card with a Jewish name, and then Palicki allowed the Germans to arrest him during a routine street roundup in Warsaw. Palicki was sent to Auschwitz, and he was assigned inmate number 4859. He was a husband and a father of two, who later said, I bade farewell to everything I had known on this earth. He became just like any other prisoner, despised, spit upon, beaten, threatened with death. And from inside the camp, he wrote this, the game I was now playing at Auschwitz was dangerous. In fact, I had gone far beyond what people in the real world would consider dangerous. Nevertheless, in 1941, prisoner number 4859 started working on his dangerous mission. He organized the inmates 
into resistance units, which boasted their morale and also uh, allowed him to document the war crimes that he witnessed. Pilecki used couriers to smuggle out details of his reports of the atrocities. By 1942, he had also helped to organize a secret radio station. They actually made a radio by using scraps. And the information that he supplied from the inside of that camp helped the Western allies with key intelligence information about Auschwitz. In the spring of 1943, Pilecki joined the camp bakery where he was able to overpower a guard and escape. And once he got on the outside, he finished his report. And he estimated that about two million souls had been killed in his time at Auschwitz. When the reports reached London, officials thought he was exaggerating. But of course, we know that he was right and that he actually underestimated. Here's how a contemporary Jewish journal summarized Pilecki's life. Once he set his mind to the good, he never wavered, never stopped. He crossed the great human divide that separates knowing the right thing from doing the right thing. The Polish ambassador to the United States described Pilecki as a diamond among Poland's heroes. I'll say what you will, but I believe with all my heart that this man Pilecki's brave and selfless act was inspired by his Christian faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who also came to our earth on a very, very dangerous mission. Because ours is a world that is full of people who are imprisoned in sin. And just like Pilecki, Jesus was despised and he was beaten and he was threatened with death, but Jesus just didn't come to report it and to move on. He came to stay. He came to die in our place. He came to defeat the sin that kills us. He came to defeat sin and its deadly consequences once and for all on that cross. Hebrews 2.14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason he came was to destroy the devil's work. In a study from the Gospel accounts of Holy Week shows clearly that Jesus fulfilled that first messianic prophecy that was found in the book of Genesis. Because on that terrible Friday, just like it says in Genesis 15, Satan would strike Jesus' heel as he died on that cross. But three days later, Jesus would rise again and crush Satan's head. And by the way, that scripture, Genesis 3.15, it has a name. It's called the Protevangelium, the first gospel. It is the first prediction in the scriptures of the good news that through his sinless life and his atoning death, Jesus would overturn the curse of the fall of mankind. Hebrews 2.15 says Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. As I said a minute ago, we're all sinners. We're hopelessly lost. But because Jesus came, no one has to stay there. 
It's our choice. It's a choice that we make. We can choose to be victims in our depravity, or we can live as victors through the power of the Holy Spirit. All we need to do is to admit our sin and accept God's Christmas gift by inviting inviting Jesus into our hearts to be the Lord and Savior of our life. And if you haven't made that choice before, you can do so today. Whether you're in this building or whether you're watching online, we're gonna pray in just a moment. But before we do, I, I I want to talk to you about this free gift called salvation that only Jesus can give. The Bible says in order to receive it, you must simply believe and confess. You must believe the story, the true story that Jesus came to this earth. God in the flesh. He lived a sinless life. He showed us how to love. He showed us how how to to work together. He showed us all the things we needed to live a successful life on this earth. But he died a horrific death. And the blood that he shed on that cross is what atones or covers or wipes away our sin. All we need to do is speak that. That's the confession part in prayer. Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you came and died for me. And I ask you to cover my sin with your shed blood. Forgive me of my sin. Make me a new creation. The Bible says that he is faithful. You pray that prayer with sincerity in your heart. And he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will cleanse you. So, when you pray that prayer of confession, you can receive salvation. You can start down a new path, a new kind of a life. And we as a church, would be honored to come alongside of you and to help you and to direct you and to teach you the things from the scriptures to make you a stronger man or woman of God. And then you can start your own adventure in Christ Jesus. I don't care what they say, serving the Lord is an adventure. And what happens is you become a continuation of God's great adventure for all mankind. And if you're here today or watching online and you're already saved, when I pray, why don't you pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God, that he, he had a plan to save you, that he had a plan to redeem you, to bring you new life. Because as we've seen, as we've seen clearly, God had this plan. And you and I, we were part of that plan. Amazing to me that the God of the universe had you and me on his mind that he wanted to redeem us from the sin that began on that first day in the Garden of Eden. Let us be thankful today for his faithfulness, for his goodness towards us, particularly during this Christmas time as we celebrate the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you stand to your feet and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, as I always say, I thank you for your word. Amazing how that from the opening chapters of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation, your plan is spelled out clearly. Oh, we don't always understand it. There are hidden things that we have to dig and search for to find out what they are, but God, it's there, clear as can be. Thank you, Lord, that in your planning, you plan for us individually. 
I believe when you hung on that cross, Lord, the face of every human being that ever walked the face of this earth or ever would crossed your mind. It was personal. You came to save each person individually. And God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to give us the opportunity to have our sins wiped away. I furthermore thank you that once we receive him and your spirit now indwells us, that you give us the power and the ability to turn away from sin, to decline the advances of our enemy and say, no, not gonna go there. You are a liar, Satan. And we realize that there's ramifications and repercussions from our sin. And we realize that we need to live a life according to your word. And I thank you for that. And Lord, as we're praying, I I ask that any individual in this building or who's watching online who doesn't know you would have the courage to pray a simple prayer of confession and belief in you. They would ask you to forgive them of their sin and become the Lord of their life, Lord, and I know you're faithful to cleanse them, that they can start a new life living and serving you, Lord God, and what a difference it's going to make within them. What a great Christmas gift to come to know you personally during this Advent season. And Lord, for those of us who are not, who did not need salvation today because you saved us maybe weeks, months, years, decades ago, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the power of your blood that cleanses away and washes away our sin. We thank you for the power of your spirit that indwells us, that allows us to resist the temptations from the evil one and to keep our eyes focused upon you. You are the prize. You are the promise. And we thank you for that. And so, God, as we part our ways today, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, things we do, places we go, the conversations that we have, and those conversations would build people up and bring life, and that we would give opportunity, have opportunities, Lord, to share your goodness with others who are yet to know you. That we can say, this is what God has done for me, and he can do it for you. God, use us in this way. I pray that you would open doors for each of us this holiday season to open our mouths and to speak of who you are and what you can do for a soul that is deeply lost. And God, I also ask that you keep us safe. You keep us safe from this COVID virus. You keep us safe from accidents. Keep us safe from other diseases and sicknesses that may befall us so that we can gather together again and we can worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you for this time we've had together. I thank you for the precious presence of your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for a plan that you invented before the dawn of time because you knew that we needed to be saved. And I thank you, Father, personally for saving me. And I know that's how everyone else in this building feels. So thank you, Lord. We we thank you and we worship you and we praise you. We ask you to go with us this week. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for being here. God bless you.